As you can see, we're starting a new series this morning. This will be our third series on thinking biblically. The introduction uh, to, the, to the series will explain why it's important that we as believers in Christ think biblically in all matters. These are more teaching studies than preaching. Uh, sometimes they're a bit more like Bible studies. The application to our lives comes out of living the truths that are presented in these messages on thinking biblically. We began in the spring of 2021 with our first series on thinking biblically. This is, was the series slide for that. Uh, we talked about thinking biblically about money. That was actually the last message. We talked about self-love. We talked about materialism and the influence of this world system. We talked about the militant transgender and homosexual agenda under gender and sexuality. Uh, we learned that the movement is just one movement and their goal is to undermine God's creation, God's desire for the creature created in His image, man. We learned that while as Christians we are to accept everyone, we can't approve of every lifestyle. And the movement redefined acceptance to be approval. There's no one more tolerant or should be more tolerant in the world than Christians. But the movement redefines tolerance to be celebration. This approval and celebration would be compromised. And these messages were preached very biblically and powerfully by our brother David Aruda. There was a message on abortion. There was a message on pornography. There was a message on the Christian's relationship to government, and our brother Gilson preached a very powerful message on race, racism, and reparations. We learned to think biblically, to understand what God has said in his word on all these things. Even though some of them we would think of as more modern issues, God has spoken on them in his word. And many of these went back to the opening chapters of Genesis before they proceeded into New Testament teaching. We had such positive feedback to that first series that several months later, in the fall of 2021, we did our second series. We had multiple messages about what we have in Christ, multiple messages about who we are in Christ. These topics came from you all that you wanted to understand God's thinking on a matter so you could conform your thoughts, your way of thinking, to the way God thought about them. We looked at the Christian in labor, and then I pushed it off to the end because it's such a serious subject. I preached on divorce and remarriage, tragedies that affect the lives of so many and that needed to be dealt with with sensitivity, pastoral care, and concern for the souls of those who have been affected by these things. We're doing series three now, and these are the topics that are going to be covered. Lord willing, we'll have two messages on stewardship. We'll look at financial stewardship this morning, stewardship of our treasure. Lord willing, next week our brother David Aruda will preach on stewardship Two other key areas of stewardship. Stewardship of our time and stewardship of our talents. We want to look at the mission and ministry of the local church. What should the local church and the individual believers in the local church, what should it be focused on and what should their lives be focused on in serving the Lord Jesus Christ? We want to look at church offices. And what are the church offices that are taught in the New Testament? Because so many churches, the vast majority of churches, evangelical churches, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches, 
do not have their church leadership, their church government set up per the New Testament scriptures. They've deviated. They've come up with their own ideas on how a church should be led, and they neglect what God has already said in his word. We want to look at true biblical worship because sadly for so many, the only thing that they consider to be true biblical worship is the glorious singing that we just all experienced. I don't know about you, but that exhilarated me. That excited me. Not merely emotionally, it did. But it excited me emotionally because of the truth of the lyrics. Certainly, the excellent musicians supported the voices and the words that were expressed. And we entered in, hopefully by singing along. But a lot of churches think that is the only thing that is worship. In fact, it's called worship. Nothing else is worship. That's our worship time. No, that's our musical worship time. And we're going to find out what true biblical worship is. It goes well beyond musical worship. We'll find out that Musical worship, sometimes it's just music. It's not true worship. We're going to look at the role of women in the church. I'm not looking forward to preaching that one. It is God's truth. Look, there's some truths in God's word I'm not particularly fond of. But God didn't ask my opinion on it when he decided what the role of women in the church should be. We're going to look at the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. And then we're going to look at a topic that in many, many evangelical churches is neglected. And that's church discipline. And we're going to find out when we look at church discipline that it's not a one-size-fits-all type of thing. There are four or five different avenues of church discipline, and each one is appropriate for a certain type of sin. And we'll learn all about that. If you wouldn't mind standing now for the reading of God's Word, uh, please, if you're able to, do so. No problem if you can't. The Lord understands. We're just going to read one passage, just a few verses. From Luke chapter 16, our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking here. He's teaching here. And he says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, unrighteous money, unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Please be seated as I pray. Father, uh, how we thank you for your precious word. How we want to understand these words that your beloved son taught so long ago. Oh, dear God, would you be pleased this morning to teach us, not by the words of any man, but by the words that your Holy Spirit inspired in Scripture. Would you be pleased to teach us the precious eternal truths of your word? Bring yourself Great honor and glory, we pray, during this time. Open our eyes, we pray, that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. We ask all this for your glory and your name's sake. Amen. This morning, we want to think biblically about Christian financial stewardship. That's what this message is going to be about. It's going to be about money. Now, we don't hear a lot about money at Grace Gospel Church. In fact, the last time we had a message about money was July 18th, 2021. Coming up on almost two years ago. 
you could go a year or two at Grace Gospel Church. And at that time, on July 18th, I said the same thing. We hadn't had a message about money in about 18 or 24 months, somewhere in that range. We don't talk a lot about money. The church is not about money. The church is about God and Christ and bringing Him glory. But financial stewardship, as we're going to find out, is one of the ways the individual believer will glorify God and Christ. I, I want this to be very clear. When we talk about giving, often people only think about the act of giving what they drop in an offering basket, what they maybe electronically over the internet give. They think about the act of giving. Giving is so much more than that. There's the desire, the attitude, the reason for giving. You've heard me say this before. When we talk about how we live out the Christian life, how we do things, we're talking about the horizontal, this world that we live in. But everything we do in the Christian life is more than the horizontal. There's the vertical component, our relationship of, with God and Christ. And the horizontal is always an expression of what's going on with an individual believer vertically regarding their relationship with God and Christ. The horizontal, whether it be giving or anything else, can never be divorced from the vertical. The horizontal always reveals the vertical. And so we want to look at the reasons for Christian financial stewardship as well. We don't want to just focus on the giving. But before we get into Christian financial stewardship, let me just give a brief introduction for the entire series on thinking biblically. The mature believer in Christ, the growing spiritually-minded believer in Christ, wants to think biblically about everything. I don't want my own opinions and thoughts on a matter. I want God's in Christ. I want to know what they said, what they think. The ancient theologians talked about thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what every spiritually minded, spiritually mature believer wants to do. We want to view things, understand things, think about things the exact same way Jesus Christ did. And so we want to grasp the importance of thinking biblically because, look, all of us, whether it be through our life in the world, whether sometimes it even be through Christian activities like listening to Christian radio or Christian television or reading a Christian book or going to Bible study, sometimes everything that expressed is not biblical. This morning, I hope we'll see what is biblical. And if it's new to you, or even it's a refresher and you forgot from July 18th, 2021, I want you to be able to see that this is what God really says about it, not what I say about it. I'm going to try and stick as close to the words of Scripture as possible so that you can see this all comes from Scripture and not from the mind of uh, an old man. How can we think biblically? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 12 he says, now we have received. In the context, if you look at the previous 11 verses, he's primarily talking about the apostles there with the we. We the apostles. But we are justified in extending this to all believers for biblical reasons. Romans chapter 8, every believer in Christ has the Holy Spirit. If anyone, it says there, Paul writes, if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he does not belong to God. He's not a believer at all. He's not a Christ follower at all, he or she. Now we have received, 
all believers in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, for by one spirit were we, and here he's talking to the entire Corinthian church, for by one spirit we have all been baptized into one body, the body of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. All have received the Spirit. Now we have received not the Spirit that is from the world. That's what we had before, before we were believers in Christ. Before we trusted in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. But instead we've received the Spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit. The Scripture is clear. Every true follower of Christ... Everyone who has truly believed in Jesus and trusting in Him alone and what He did on the cross for salvation is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's not for the preachers. It's not for the elders. It's not for a special group of super spiritual people. Every believer in Christ is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Christ is placed in the body of Christ through the baptizing ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why, have we know, why do we have the Spirit of God according to Paul here? So that, here's the purpose, here's the reason, so that we might know the things freely given to us by God. God wants us to know all that he has given to the believer in Christ. Paul talks about these things. These are things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Where do we find the Spirit's words? In the Word of God. All scriptures inspired by God. The prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. We find it in God's Word. But the natural man, the unsaved man, the one who has not yet been born again, through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They haven't been born of the Holy Spirit. They do not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to them. It doesn't mean that the unsaved may not understand the truth that is taught there. But they don't see the personal value for them. They reject the personal value for them. If they didn't, they would accept it and be saved. But the unsaved, the natural man, does not accept those things because they're foolishness to him. Oh, you really believe what's in that old book, the Bible? Well, good for you. I'm glad you have your crutch. You need it. But I can stand on my own two feet. You've probably heard things like that when you've shared the gospel with someone or you've answered their question about something. Not only do they, do they not, but they cannot understand them. They won't, they don't, and they can't. They can't understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually appraised. Again, they can understand the doctrine, the teaching. Oh, a Christ follower should do this, but I'm not going to do that. I don't see any value in that. Why should I prefer others above myself. I mean, it's all about me, isn't it? See, they don't see the value in becoming more like Christ in their behavior and their conduct and their words. They not only can't they understand, but uh, don't they understand, but they can't understand because these things are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual evaluates, appraises, discerns all things Yet that individual is evaluated by no one. The unsaved, the natural man, they don't understand what makes the believer in Christ tick. How can they be so victorious during the time of trial? How do they do the things that they do? It's, it's as if the believer in Christ, the spiritually minded believer in Christ, is walking on the water, walking on the waves, the storms of life. They can have victory over that. The unsaved, the natural man, just doesn't understand what makes that person tick. How can they understand? How can they do what they do? In verse 16, Paul presents a rhetorical question. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? The answer is no one. 
Apart from the Spirit of God, no man knows the mind of the Lord. God's ways are not our ways, the prophet writes. Neither his thoughts our thoughts. For as the heavens are as high above the earth, so are God's ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. The reason why we can know these is we have the mind of Christ because we have the Spirit of God. The believer's mind should not be influenced by the world. Paul writes this in Romans. Do not be conformed to this world. Conformed. It has the idea, the original Greek language that Paul wrote in, that word has the idea of being pressed into a mold. Now, some of you ladies, and some of you men, you don't have to admit to it, I have made Christmas cookies. You know, you roll out the dough, and then you have these little metal forms that you press into the dough. You lift it out, and you have a tree, or a star, or whatever that mold is that you've pressed into the dough. Don't allow the world to press you into its mold. God wants to mold every believer in Christ into the image and likeness, the moral image and likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to mold our thought patterns after his own beloved son's thought patterns. He wants us to think biblically. Don't be pressed into the world's mold, but be transformed. That Greek word we get our English word metamorphosis from. God wants to take us from the caterpillar of the unsaved into the beautiful butterfly of the one who thinks God's thoughts after him. He wants to transform us, metamorphosize us. How? By the renewing of our mind. The focus in Scripture is on the mind. Proper emotions should grow out of what we think. And so the emphasis is on renewing the mind. That is found in God's Word. God's mind is revealed in His Word. And without a focus on God's Word, we're not going to have a renewed mind. So let's think biblically about stewardship this morning. Let's begin with, what is stewardship? I mean, I've heard that word, steward and stewardship. In this context, what does the word mean? It just, it turns out that the English definition of steward and stewardship is exactly the definition of the Greek words that were used when the New Testament was written. It was originally written in the Greek language of the day. A steward is a person who manages another's properties or financial affairs. Doesn't mean they don't manage some of their own, but as a steward, they manage another's property or financial affairs. Stewardship is the position and duties of a steward. A steward is a person who acts as the surrogate of another or of others, especially managing property, financial affairs, or an estate. In our Lord's Day, in the time of the apostles right after, in a wealthy Greco-Roman estate, there were many servants or slaves, many employees. There was one in the household who oversaw for the owner of the estate all of the other servants. He was known as the steward. In a more modern-day English, wealthy English uh, household, that would be the butler. All the other servants are under the authority of the butler. That's what a steward is. He's a manager or an administrator of someone else's, both in English and in the original Greek language of the New Testament. So how does this apply to Christian stewardship? There's one requirement that God has laid down in his word for a steward. Just one thing you and I need to remember and perform faithfully. And it's this. It is required of stewards that one be found faithful. 
That's all the Lord is looking for in you and I. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. That's it. He's not looking at great results. It's the Holy Spirit's job to produce results. It's not your job and mine. We just need to be faithful to the stewardship that the Lord has entrusted to every one of us. And as next week, Lord willing, when David goes over stewardship of our talents, we will find out every single believer in Christ, without exception, has been given a stewardship by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us, not just the elders of a church, not just the heads of ministries, not just people serving, for example, in the AV ministry at the back of this room, not just the preachers, every single person has a stewardship. God in Christ wants one thing and one thing from us in our stewardship, in our management of what he has entrusted to our care, that we be found faithful, whether it's money or whether it's one of the other aspects of stewardship that Lord willing we'll hear about next week. So let's think biblically now about Christian financial stewardship. Sadly, in this day and age, Christians are like a pendulum. I mean, all people are, not just Christians. They swing equidistant of a center line. They swing to the left and to the right. They go to one extreme or the other extreme. And those extremes, when we're talking about financial stewardship, is spending or hoarding. Some people have a materialistic eye. Uh, the Bible calls it the lust of the eye, the desire to possess. And they spend when it's not necessary to spend. Or they live their life in fear. Maybe the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth has so ordained that they don't have an abundance of material things, uh, particularly money. And so they fear what does the future hold, and they hoard. Even some of those with a lot of money hoard. What is the dividing line between spending and hoarding? There's a dividing line of truth that divides between spending and hoarding. That dividing line is a path that we walk. It keeps us on the path so that we don't become materialistic and overspend or we don't out of fear or greed hoard. What is that dividing line? It is giving. Giving is the dividing line. Giving is the path that keeps us from spending too much or hoarding. It is the dividing line of truth, and that is giving. There's a lot more to giving than putting something in the basket. Giving guards our heart. It's a shield of protection. It is armor around our heart. If you're a Star Trek fan, it's, a, it's shields up to protect us against the phasers of spending or the photon torpedoes of hoarding. It protects us from one extreme or the other. And that's giving. It serves that purpose. To think biblically about money or financial stewardship, we need to understand two things. Financial stewardship in the Old Testament. Yes, I know we're not under the Old Covenant any longer. We're under the New Covenant in Christ's blood. But so many Christians import an idea of financial stewardship from the Old Testament and force it on Christians in the New Testament. So we first are going to understand that, and then we're going to look at financial stewardship in the New Testament. So let's look at financial stewardship or the use of money or resources in the Old Testament. Financial stewardship in the Old Testament was based upon tithing. What is a tithe? It's an older English word. And it means literally one-tenth or 10%. That's all it means. It means nothing else. It doesn't mean necessarily religious giving. A tithe might be applied to religious giving, 
in the Old Testament, but the word itself means one-tenth or ten percent. That's all it means. That's the meaning of the word. Now, how the word is used is different than its meaning. How it's applied is different than its meaning. But it means one-tenth or ten percent. Financial stewardship in the Old Testament was based upon tithing. Need to make this clear. The Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are primarily a transitional period from the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, to the New Covenant in Christ's blood. And most of the Gospels, other than the last couple of chapters of each of the Gospels, is covered by the Mosaic Covenant. Christ was born a Jew. He lived as a Jewish man. He perfectly fulfilled the law of Moses, all 613 commandments, his entire life, from childhood to his death on the cross. The Gospels are a transitional period. When did the New Covenant, when did Christ say the New Covenant was coming into effect? 14 hours, approximately 14 hours before he was crucified. He celebrated the last Passover with his disciples. And after the main meal of the Passover, there are four cups of wine in the Passover celebration. He took the bread and he looked up to heaven and having given thanks, he broke it and shared it with his disciples and said, take, eat from it, all of you. This is my body, which is given, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the supper, he took the third cup of the Passover ceremony. And looking to heaven, he gave thanks, and he handed it to his disciples. He said, pass this amongst yourself. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. That's the commencement of the new covenant. And that's in the last couple of chapters of each gospel. That's it. Everything else is transitional. It's still under the old covenant. It's not part of the new covenant. It's not addressed to the church primarily. So the Gospels are a transitional period. No more so than when it talks about tithing in the Gospels. That's under the Mosaic Covenant. When we look at tithing in the Old Testament in the Gospels, we need to look at two things. Prior to the Mosaic Law or Mosaic Covenant, which began to be given in Exodus chapter 20 at Mount Sinai, the 50 chapters of Genesis and the first 19 chapters of Exodus all come before the Ten Commandments, followed by the rest of the law, being given in Exodus chapter 20. That's prior to the Mosaic Law. And then we want to look at it in the Mosaic Law. And are you ever going to be surprised what the law Moses taught? Some of you might remember, but if you never heard that message, you're going to be shocked. Everything you heard about tithing in the Old Testament is going to collapse when you see what the Scriptures have to say. Prior to the Mosaic Law, we have a nice example of it, <clears throat> excuse me, in Genesis chapter 14. And Avram, Abraham, his name was Avram, God changed it to Avraham. Abraham returning from defeating Kedor Leomer. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him. Blessed be Avram of God Most High. Blessed be God Most High who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Avram, or Abraham, gave him a tenth of all. I want to point out a few things here. This occurred before the law, and I have heard Christians from the pulpit say that because Abraham tithed, he gave a tenth, a tithe, some English translations say. 
gave him a tenth of all because Abraham did this and he's the father of the faithful as we learned when we covered the life of Abraham that because it existed before the law it ought to exist after the law as well. Every Christian needs to follow Abraham's example and give a tenth. Now, before and after are clearly two different things. But no matter, look what the text says. After Abraham's return from defeating in warfare, Kedor Leomer and the other kings that were allied with him, they had conquered the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some other kings, and they took Abraham's nephew Lot, his entire household, all his possessions, they carried them away in the spoils of victory. Well, Abraham, when a messenger came and told him, he gets all his armed men, and he goes out to do battle with these kings, and God gives Abraham victory. And Abraham then takes all the wealth of the conquering kings that he defeated, all the wealth of his, ne uh, his nephew Lot, all the wealth of Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes all the people and all their wealth as the spoils of victory from defeating Kedor Laomer and the kings that allied himself with him. And he's bringing them back. And as he comes back, a priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, comes out and meets him and blesses him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of all. See, the word all is used in some of the previous verses. All the spoils. It referred to all the spoils of victory. This is just a description of what happened. It's an accurate description of what happened. It's not a prescription for you and I to do the same. There is no, and go and do likewise. There is no command addressed to any believer in Christ here. There is no exhortation. It's just a description. It's not a prescription. Well, if we were to go to our resident physician here, uh, Dr. Rowland, we're not feeling well. He examines us, and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a prescription. Take two aspirin and call me in the morning. Or he writes one out that we have to fulfill at the pharmacy. Now, notice he didn't write out these are little round pills that are light blue in color. And this is what, that'd be a description of the medicine. Instead, he gives a prescription. Take two aspirin, not one, not three, two. Call me in the morning, not later that evening or three days from now. A prescription is what we should do. A description is what happened. This is just a description. There is no prescription here. But somebody might say, okay, you know, I, I really want to use this as a prescription. Notice what they do. They pick and choose what details of the description they want to use. They picked one, a tenth. Everybody's got to give a tenth. No. What did they ignore? They ignored the fact that there was warfare. They ignored the fact that there was victory in warfare. They ignored the fact from the description that there was the spoils of victory. That's inconsistent. To be consistent, you have to use all the details. So it would be wrong to use this passage in this way, but if you really thought you should, you've got to be consistent. So the next time any of us go to war against an evil person and we defeat them in combat, then carry away all their spoils, all their wealth, take the keys to their house, the keys to their car, empty their bank accounts, search for any loose change between the cushions of the sofa, take that away, and then give a tenth of that. That would be a better use of this passage. Still wrong, but you're trying to account for all of the details instead of picking and choose. But Paul, Abraham was the father of the faithful. We heard all those messages on how devoted he was to the Lord. Okay? Again, he was devoted to the Lord. He believed God. He trusted in God. But he also trusted in himself and the flesh. He committed adultery. 
Does that mean we should follow his example and commit adultery? Of course not. The stories of Abraham describe him. There are timeless principles there about God and how God works in the life of believers. But you don't have to take my word that this has to do with the spoils of victory. God wrote a commentary on these verses. It's found in Hebrews chapter 7. God wrote a commentary. He comments on this. The Holy Spirit tells us that it spoils. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 4, now it begins in verse 1 by talking about Melchizedek. He's explicitly mentioned there. Now consider how great this man, Melchizedek, was that even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of what? Of the spoils. God's commentary. It's just the spoils. So the tithing that we see before the law was 10%. It comes before the law. Here in the case of Abraham, it has to do with the spoils of warfare, of victory in warfare. That's all it has to do with. We have no warrant or justification to extend it beyond that. How about in the Mosaic Law? If I were to ask you, how was financial stewardship carried out in the Mosaic Law? Exodus 20 through the last Passover in the Gospels. The Mosaic Law, that entire period. Well, all you have to do is read the heading, and I've already told you, it was tithing. If I were to ask you how much the Jews gave in giving. They were required giving, and then there was free will offerings over and above. Each Jew was, could decide whether to give none or more, but they were required by the law to give something, and that was tithing. If I were to ask you how much that would be, <clears throat> all of you would probably say, oh, Paul, you already told us, tithe means 10% or one-tenth. They gave 10%. Well, you'd be right about the tithe, but you'd be wrong about how much. The reason is, most people think there was one tithe in the Old Testament law, in the Mosaic Covenant. There was more than one tithe. In fact, in the law, there were three tithes, each one 10%. We're not going to look at the verses. You can take a snapshot or the slideshow will be on the website. You can note the verse references there. Read them. Read them over two or three times. Look for the similarities. Look for the differences. And you'll see there were three tithes. If you can't pick up on that, talk to me next week, and I'll be happy to show you. We'll go through the verses together. It'll take five to ten minutes. Every year, there was a Levitical tithe. Tithe, 10%. Every year. Every year, there was a festival tithe. Another 10%. It was taken to Jerusalem probably three times a year when Jewish males appeared before the temple in Jerusalem. And then every third year, there was a tithe for the poor. It included Levites, widows, orphans, the poor. A three-year cycle. 20%, 20%, 30%. 20%, 20%, 30 That's financial stewardship in the Old Testament. There's no getting around it. Those who think, well, it was 10%, they don't understand the Old Testament. This might blow your mind, but this is in God's Word. I've included the verse references there, so you can see it's not my opinion. In fact, this is the opinion of Old Testament scholars, both liberals and conservative scholars. Three tithes. I didn't make it up. So let's focus on now financial stewardship in the New Testament and see what's involved with financial stewardship in the New Testament. We're going to look at it under two headings, the importance of financial stewardship and the spirit of financial stewardship. And I, I got up a little late, and I've taken too much time. I really got to move through this because this is the most important part. The importance of financial stewardship. We're going to look at the verses we read in Luke 16. Now, some of you are thinking, but Paul, you said the Gospels were transitional. Christ was crucified in, in, uh, in the last chapters of Luke. And this is chapter 16. Why are you going to talk to us about financial stewardship in the New Testament from the Gospels, the transitional period? 
You might have noticed when we read these verses together at the beginning that not once does the Lord mention tithing. Not once does He mention the Mosaic law. What He mentions is giving. In fact, we started with like verse 10. If you were to read the first nine verses of Luke 16, the Lord told a parable. A parable about a steward. Not a Jewish man or woman tithing. He talked about a steward who had to give an account of his stewardship, what had been entrusted to him. Stewardship is not just something under the Mosaic Law. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 4 too. What, is, what does God require of a steward? But that he be found faithful. Christ is talking about something that goes beyond the Mosaic Law that continues into the New Covenant, stewardship. And that's what he's talking about here in chapter 16. In fact, the he of verse 10 refers back in a more general sense to anyone who is a steward. He's referencing the parable that he just told about a steward and his stewardship. Faithful stewardship begins with the little things. He was faithful in a very little thing, will be faithful also in much. He was unrighteous in a little thing, will be unrighteous also in much. Stewardship begins with the little things. So many people want to begin serving here instead of serving here. You know, when I went to seminary, there were so many young men. They were chomping at the bit to show what great preachers they were. They wanted to preach on Sunday mornings. And sadly, some of them became very downcast or upset when they were, when they were told by one of the elders, that's very admirable that you want to do that. Why don't you start by setting up the chairs? Get here 20 minutes early and set up the chairs. What? I'm a seminary student. I'm studying to preach God's Word. I've already preached in my home church. They didn't show themselves to be faithful in a little. How could they be trusted in much? Faithful stewardship always begins with the little things. Now, you and I might think of setting up chairs as the little things. Paul's about to tell us what the little thing is. Guess what the little thing is? Money is the little thing. If you have not been faithful in the use of money, unrighteous wealth, this blows our mind. We're so focused on money sometimes, we view it all out of proportion to spiritual truths and other things that impact the life of the believer in Christ. Money is the little thing. If we're not faithful in the little thing, how can we be faithful when we have more responsibility? Faithfulness begins with giving. This is what the Word of God is saying. I'm not making this up. You can see it for yourself. If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, The rest of the verse goes on. Who will entrust the true riches to you? Money is a little thing. We need to view money as a little thing. It's not that it's not important. Look, we all have a rent or a mortgage to pay. We have to buy food for next week. Money is necessary. I'm not talking primarily about the money, but our attitude towards money. Our attitude towards financial stewardship. It's not some great thing for the person who's been saved. Oh, that's only for somebody who's been saved 20, 30, 40 years. Oh, that's only for the elders or the preachers or the heads of ministries or only for those who serve in... No. It's a little thing for everyone. That's where it begins. It begins with that. Sadly, in the lives of most Christians, the last thing to be sanctified and brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the wallet or the purse or the bank accounts. We view that as the last thing, and that's the truth. It's not the way it should be, but it's the reality for many people. But it's the starting point. Did you ever think about that? Giving as the starting point 
of your walk with Jesus Christ. It's the little things that matter. Paul goes on under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Paul is teaching the same thing Christ taught. It's a... Excuse me. The little things that matter. This is actually Christ speaking here. My apologies. Uh, The next passage we look at will be Paul. I'm so sorry about that. My apologies. Uh, If not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches? It's the little things that matter. We show our faithfulness first in the little things. All our money is really the Lord's. This is such an eye-opener as well. Have you ever heard someone say, or perhaps you've thought it yourself, I know a long time ago I thought this way. When it comes to giving, I'm going to give the Lord some of my money. I'm going to put in the offering some of my hard-earned cash. The reality is all our money is the Lord's. God is gracious to us, and He allows us to keep most of His money for ourselves. For many people, they get to keep 70% or 90% or 95% for themselves. The New Testament doesn't specify a percentage in giving. For some, in this day and age in this country, 10% is too much. But for others, 10% is far too little. God doesn't set up a fixed percentage like he did under the Old Covenant. We need to understand, first and foremost, all our resources, all our money in this case, is really the Lord's. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, that's stewardship. Remember, stewardship manages that which belongs to another. If you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? All that we have belongs to the Lord. We should praise Him that He allows us to give Him, uh, to keep for ourselves the vast majority of it and give Him a smaller, for most people, a smaller percentage than what we keep for our own needs. The reason why this teaching that the Lord gave is so important is there can be only one Lord. He says, no servant can serve two masters. Not a single one of us can serve two masters. There only, can only be one master, one Lord over our life. In the case of two masters, what happens is we either hate one and love the other, or we cling or hold or are devoted to one and we despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. If money is our master, Christ is not our master. If Finances are our Lord. Christ is not our Lord. There's only one master in the life of every believer. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 9 and the spirit of financial stewardship. Reward will always be in proportion to giving. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. The reaping... The reward is always in proportion to giving. Not the amount, but the proportion. The Lord looks at giving differently. He calls the disciples' attention to the widow who threw in the two smallest coins. Do you see that widow? She gave more than all the rich men. The disciples are scratching. What do you you mean? She threw in two mina, two lepta, the smallest coin. They gave bags of gold. Their servants sounded a trumpet. My master's about to give a large sum to the temple. And they dumped it in there and made sure it rang out loud. You could barely hear the tinkle of her two tiny coins, the widow's mites going in. The Lord viewed that differently. She gave more than them all. Huh? How's that work, Lord? They gave out of their abundance. She gave all that she had. He views it differently what is sparingly, and what is bountifully. It's not the amount, it's the proportion. What we gave versus what we 
could have given. Reward will always be in proportion to giving. Giving should be purposeful. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his own heart. We need to have a plan in giving. Yes, things may crop up. And maybe we can't give some week or a month or even a year what we would like to give. But we should have a plan. And unless circumstances beyond our control interfere with that plan, we should follow through with that plan. Giving must be purposeful. Look, there, there were times when I was first married and my wife were raising an infant boy and then his younger sister. I was the only one working. My job didn't allow me at that point to take a second job. I, I was bringing home $160 a week. We couldn't give 10%. That's what I thought we should be giving then. I now know better that 10% is way too much for some and far, far too little for others in this country, even with our economy the way it is now. may not be very many here, but it might be one or two of us. Who knows? The Lord knows. And you know if that applies to you. That's between you and the Lord. There were times, 5%. But what we wanted was, oh Lord, I wish we had more to give. That was the desire of the heart. The Lord would bless that and and there'd be times when we could give several or many times as much. And it might fluctuate. The Lord understands it, but have a plan. Be purposeful about it. Giving should be willing. It's never forced. Each one must do, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, it goes on to say. Not grudgingly or under compulsion. This is one of the reasons why the elders of Grace Gospel Church have decided we will never pass a basket here again. Just that basket going by and the thought, people are watching me, they might give grudgingly. Now that's their problem. But we don't want to contribute to that. We don't want to set them up to fail, to do something grudgingly or feeling under compulsion. Giving is between you and the Lord. Whether you give or not and how much, we know we don't ask for money. The church has needs, it has a mortgage, but the Lord will provide. He'll provide through you all as He blesses you. But giving should be willing. Never feel forced to give. That's between you and the Lord. And I trust that everyone who names the name of Christ wants to please their Lord, even in this little thing of giving. Faithful in the living little thing. Look, this is a test. Have you ever wondered? Maybe some of you have been in this experience. God and Christ seem different. They seem distant. Uh, the, the depth of your relationship and love and devotion to God and Christ doesn't, it seems to be lacking. It's not what you want it to be. You don't recognize the nearness of God's presence and the warmth of his smile. And, and, I just, and, and you examine your life and I, I don't see any rebellious sin in my life. Maybe it's because we're not being faithful in the little thing. Is not our relationship with God and Christ one of the big things in the Christian life? Maybe the reason why we're not experiencing all the joy and blessing that God has for us is because we're unfaithful in the little thing. Giving should be willing. Never feel forced or compelled to give. Giving should be cheerful. Each one must be a cheerful giver. Look, I, I love sharing the gospel with people. I love it even more when they make a profession in faith in Christ, and especially if they follow in Christ's footsteps, and they live the Christian life. That gives me so much joy. But giving ought to give us joy as well. We're serving the Lord when we, when we give. God loves the cheerful giver. You want to feel the warmth of His love and His smile upon you? Give cheerfully, not grudgingly or under compulsion. If you can't give, 
because of an unexpected bill or you lost your job or, or you need an unexpected uh, $2,000 car repair. The Lord understands that. He's the sovereign Lord. He ordained these circumstances in your life. He understands it. He looks at the desire. God loves the cheerful giver. Always give cheerfully. It's not merely your duty. It's the believer in Christ's privilege and honor to glorify their Lord through giving. Never fear giving. God can provide for you. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. Don't fear the future. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The Lord taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. The context is similar. God is able to do whatever he wants to do. God is able to provide for you. This is not prosperity gospel so that you always have all sufficiency in everything. This is not the prosperity gospel. That is a false gospel. That is not biblical truth. It's not, oh, if I give this little seed faith, this seed money, then God will bless me financially. He'll bless me materially. I'll be able to buy that Mercedes Benz. Or I'll be able to buy that bigger house. Oh, Paul, I don't want a Mercedes Benz. No, what do you want? Oh, I want a Ford Raptor. I want a Range Rover. I'm not a Mercedes-Benz person. It doesn't matter. Everybody has these desires that we need to bring under the lordship of Jesus Christ. God can provide for you. This all-sufficiency in everything, what is it that he's talking about? The context tells us. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you may have an abundance, not for buying everything your heart desires, but for every good deed. In fact, if we were to go on to verse 12, which we don't have time for, you would find out that the purpose of God giving you an abundance is so that you will have an abundance for all generosity. That's what it says. Generosity or liberality, depending on your translation. God provides, will provide all you need so that you can serve Him in giving even more. That's what God wants us to do. So today, will you begin to recognize that all you and I have comes from God? It all belongs to Him. Will you recognize that giving is a true measure of spiritual faithfulness? That is the true measure of spiritual faithfulness. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation... Know this, you cannot buy your salvation. If you don't know whether you're going to spend eternity in heaven with God in Christ, you can't buy heaven. Even if you gave all that you had, Jesus Christ already paid the price. He shed his blood and died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world in his body. He paid the price. When he hung there, he said, it is finished. It has been completed the work of salvation is done. We can't add anything to it. You can't buy your way to heaven. Christ already bought the way for anyone who will turn from their sins and trust in him. You can't pray your way to heaven. You can't serve your way to heaven. You can't do good deeds, even to the poor, to get yourself into heaven. That's not the gospel that's found in Scripture. It's acknowledge that you are a sinner deserving God's wrath and judgment, that you belonged on that cross instead of Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins. He bore God's judgment so that you would never have to. Turn from your sins and cry out to God for salvation. Be merciful to me, a sinner, and he will save you. Many of the people here have made that decision. It's the best decision we've ever made in our life. Trust in Him. Believe on Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So what are you thinking this morning? Are you thinking biblically about 
financial stewardship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the power of your word. Oh, dear God, may your Holy Spirit enable us to take these precious truths home with us. Give us clearer understanding. Make things clearer to each one here than than I attempted to do this morning. Oh, dear God, create in us a burning desire to be faithful in our stewardship, beginning with the little things. And may this faithfulness bring you honor and glory. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen.